0: Welcome back to the 69th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how Gen Z may not actually face imposter syndrome, a very common thing among millennials and Gen Xers, an r- article talking about why marriage is more important than money or a career, lots of debate on that one currently in our society, And then we have one talking about Israel's strange stance towards Ukraine and Russia and their conflict. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So as a lot of Gen Z is starting to go out into the workforce. A lot of them are really wondering what do they want to do, how they want to interact with the world. And we've seen a big change in the perspective of workers coming out of COVID. A lot of them are self-assured, or at least they know what they want now. They want to work at home. They want a little bit more freedom. And it's putting a lot of stress on companies it's pushing them to change how they go about conducting their business. And my question to you is, that is that a good or bad thing? Because change itself doesn't have to be a good or bad thing. Sometimes it can push a company to do something in a different way and look at their issues from a different perspective and then allow them to come up with creative solutions. But also one could argue that If they change just for the sake of pleasing their employees rather than with a certain goal in mind or with the knowledge, the understanding of what they need to do as they're changing in order to really take advantage of what they're doing and how they're changing, then it could be detrimental. And this is not just a company-to-company basis. This is across the entire nation, if not the entire world. And as I'll point out here with Gen Z, they're very confident, or at least they pretend to be. And they're putting a lot of pressure on employers. So do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing that we're seeing this transitionary period? I've brought it up before, but I think with the context of today, it will actually maybe change your perspective on it just a little bit. All right, let's jump into our first article. This one comes from Fast Company. Will Gen Z be the first generation not to experience imposter syndrome? So the imposter syndrome, most anybody in the job market has at least heard of this term. You know, I had an internship this summer, and I heard a lot about it. There were slides upon slides about it's okay, it's natural, to feel like you don't necessarily deserve everything you're getting here. That one day your boss is going to come down from on high and be like, why did we hire them? We need to get rid of them. They're not not—they're not actually good enough to be in this position. And it's kind of an internalized thought process. And for a minute there, I was like, no, that's crazy. I, I worked hard for what I got. And then as time went on, I was like, well, maybe maybe I got it because of this connection or that connection. So on and so forth. So, you know, at first I thought it was a little bit of baloney, but then I understood it, what they were getting at. But the question then becomes, did I actually feel imposter syndrome naturally, or was that because it was being reinforced by the company culture? And this article really talks about how Gen Z is just more confident. They come in knowing what they want, They have this abundance of technology, or they've grown up with this abundance of technology at their fingertips. And it has really shaped how they view the world and how they interact with it. And I think that, you know, from what I see in my generation, there are a lot of people I know that definitely are very self-assured and they probably won't suffer from imposter syndrome, but I still see a good majority of people who may feel that they're not necessarily qualified, they may have gotten lucky to get where they are, but I do want to point out, and I probably should have said this about the, in the beginning when I was talking about my internship, I feel as though a lot of the imposter syndrome that, or at least when it was stated by some of the people I knew at work, it kind of felt feigned, it felt like they were trying to be humble, like, oh, I don't deserve this job, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why they hired me. I just got lucky. It feels like they were asking for you to say, oh, no, you deserve it. And they were just trying to put on a facade of humility rather than genuinely believing it. Now, of course, I can't read their minds, but that's what it felt like to me. So I think there is a big difference between genuine imposter syndrome, people who genuinely believe they just got to where they got because they're lucky, and this egotistical, feigned humility where it's, oh, yes, I was I was lucky. Don't you think so? And then you have to reply with, no, 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 of course. You, you got here because you are a hard worker. You're talented. So, but we'll, we'll jump into it a little bit more as we go on. But unlike millennials, Gen Z is purported to be facing, not be facing the same amount of imposter syndrome. So I just highlighted the millennials, how... It feels like feigned imposter syndrome, but still, it's at least categorizes imposter syndrome on these surveys. But the author says Gen Z not headed that direction. Quote, Gen Z or those born between 1997 and 2012 are less likely to suffer from this experience than other generations, including Gen X like me. There are a few distinct reasons for the shift many stemming from the near ubiquity of technology at their fingertips since birth. This generation doesn't know a world without Google search, allowing them to research anything within minutes of thinking it. And when you're armed with information, you are just more generally confident, says Corey Seamer, a leading Gen Z expert and professor at Wright State University who has conducted multiple studies on this group since they began entering college. To be able to, quote, to be able to acquire knowledge and build expertise can reduce imposter syndrome, C. Miller says, quote, you don't have to feel like an imposter because you know what you're talking about, end quote. And I mean, of, of course, if you can instantly fact check anyone, if you can instantly fact check your parents, you really do feel as though you're smarter or at least you feel like you're a better information gatherer. And this does provide a certain confidence. This confidence that is born of their practice, though, is one that's flimsy, in my opinion. It is. It really encourages you to be above everybody, to believe that you know what you're talking about, that you have the answers, rather than encouraging humility by asking and probing from your parents and other people and having to admit you don't know something rather than just being able to look it up and say oh i know it now yeah i'm i'm good i'm smart and i feel like that's a quality our generation lacks even if even if the millennials that i was talking about or gen z if they're have imposter syndrome and they're even being overly humble they're trying to it's a feigned humility that is still better in my opinion than someone who is overly confident and has no humility because at least in practicing that feigned humility eventually maybe you actually become humble you are what you practice in my opinion so but the author gives us some good statistics here or at least one good statistic that i kind of want to highlight even if imposter syndrome is a presentation of false humility then we are what we practice and it becomes more tangible over time. 70% of people of the different generations than Gen X have reported to experience imposter syndrome. 70%. Now imagine that that number is cut down by a half or two-thirds. That's a lot more people who believe that they deserve more. And I think that is very interesting as a dynamic that employers are going to have to work with. They're going to have a lot of confident Gen Z personalities coming into their workplace, demanding more. And I say demanding more, and I don't mean to make it sound bad, like, oh, you must give me more, I don't deserve it. Maybe they do deserve it. But even then, you're not going to have the people that sit back, wait for the management to give them that promotion. No, they're going to keep pushing for that promotion. They're going to hassle you about it, or at least they're going to try to. And if they don't get it, they may leave. And that's a new dynamic that some employers may not be used to. They may be used to a hierarchical system, especially in unionized places. They'll be used to a hierarchical system. The longer you've been here, the more likely you are to get the promotion. You can't just hustle your way to the top And that's a mindset that this generation doesn't necessarily hold. So it's going to cause a lot of shifts in the workplace. Quote, while the pandemic increased uncertainties and mental health issues for some Gen Zers, technology, experience, and individuality have made this generation acutely aware of their power and purpose. Today, they represent the largest generation in the world, or about 32% of the 7.7 billion people on the earth surpassing millennials and baby boomers, according to a Bloomberg analysis of the United Nations data. According to a recent survey, almost two-thirds of Gen Z Americans have started or intend to start their own business. Nearly half have more than one side hustle. They have so many more opportunities and startups and 501c3s than they're in, when they're in high school and college, says Mark Beal, a Rutgers University professor and author of his forthcoming book, Zio, introducing Gen Z, the new generation of leaders, end quote. And I do want to point out something that they say here, which is Gen Z is the largest generation. This is true across the world at about 32%. In America, we are actually one of the smallest generations since the Gen Xers. So we don't have as much of an outsized control in America. But around the world, there are a lot of Gen Zers. And this is interesting because a lot of them, if they're not here in America, and they're not necessarily in the West because they have lower birth rates in general, then there are a lot of Gen Zers in emerging economies, which will really drive this innovation forward, which I think is a very good thing. And I think that this author's right that, or at least when he's quoting Mark Beal, that we're the next generation of leaders. Of course, the millenni- the Gen Xers, Millennials, they'll be the old people on Capitol Hill in politics being the leaders, but we really are the next generation of overly confident people that believe we can take it to the next step, that we have the ability to lead. So that's what I think he means when he says we are the next leaders. And I know maybe I'm being preferential to my own generation. I get it. Maybe people that are a little bit older or even younger, somehow you're listening to this, like, you you Gen Zers, you think you're all this, you think you're all that. No, I just think that a lot of people in our generation are cocky, which is going to make them believe that they are suited for leadership. So we'll see how all that pans out. But there is one thing here, and I wanted to highlight it because it really does show that, Just because Gen Z is confident and they believe that they know what they're talking about, there is still a little bit of that humility that I was worried we wouldn't find. And I found this little seed at the end of the article, and I really liked what I heard. Quote, while imposter syndrome may not be an issue for most, they still need support from more senior members of the team. Quote, the access to more information does contribute to a sense of confidence in terms of being prepared. But we will still need guidance and mentoring, says Isabella Benzone, end quote. And I agree. We can't be so confident and arrogant, oh, we're in this new age, and then throw out all the wisdom that has been gathered over the past generations. Because at the end of the day, we have to accept their knowledge, we have to accept what they've learned, and translate it into our modern era, and make sure that we can retain those values. And that's how a society keeps flowing, And that's how a culture over time is built, passed on traditions, rather than tearing it all down just because some things have changed when it comes to the technology. And I think that's really important. Now, speaking about keeping our society locked in and growing and prospering, let's jump to our next article from the New York Post. Tell your kids marriage is more important than money or career, because it is. Today, there is a... Great focus on careers, success, making something of yourself. And I believe that these are all admirable focuses. They're very important focuses. They give people drive. But going forward, we need to make sure that as a society, we are not leaving behind family and the value that it brings in order to pursue these things. Quote, a new Pew study shows parents prefer, by a lot, their children prioritize financial independence and a good career over family and children. 88% of parents said it is extremely or very important for their child to be financially independent when they reach adulthood. 88% also said that the same of their children having a job they enjoy only 21% of parents said it was extremely or very important for their child to get married, and just 20% felt that strongly about their prodigy reproducing. End quote. So, to be honest, the author, or at least the study, doesn't necessarily give us a why as to why respondents said what they said. Maybe a large amount of those 88% percent of the parents that replied maybe they said i want my kid to be financially secure and if you would ask a follow-up question why so that they can ensure that their family is provided for so on and so forth so i think we could be lacking some context here i think the author probably did their research but i'm going to call around and say we could be missing some research here some content uh, some context But still, the fact that only 21% and 22%, sorry, 20% and 20%, 21% and 20% said that they want their kids to get married or to reproduce does really speak to the fact that that's, that's a low number. and That's kind of hard to misconstrue. So it kind of points in my mind that at the end of the day, we have our arrow pointing in the wrong direction. We have our northern star is slightly out of alignment when we're reading it from the map. We are focusing on the wrong things as a society. At the end of the day, I'll ask you this, at the end of the day, in order for society to survive, what is the one thing you need? What's the one thing? Well, someone probably would say, you need education, you need a government. But... If you don't have people to work in education, if you don't have people to teach, if you don't have people to empower the governed or even to govern, then how can you have a society? If we're not emphasizing creating or at least allowing more parents to exist and having more kids, then how can we have a society? Oh, yeah, well, we can can take in immigrant populations. We can allow immigration to increase and bring in people from other parts of the world. This is true. But as the rest of the world civilizes, eventually that will not be tenable. Eventually we will not be the number one superpower. Maybe it takes a hundred years, maybe it takes a thousand years, but eventually we will not be the number one superpower. So the allure of migrating to America will most definitely fade. And at what point are we going to have less people not even just stop the stopping of immigration but less people that offset the death rate sorry less people emigrating that offset the death rate it's a serious concern and i think we need to take a more serious look at it than we are or at least a more public discussion because i'm assuming i've i feel like some of the policies i've seen come out from both sides on the political level are trying to address this but it's not a broader public conversation at the end of the day or at least it's not one that we want to have because it's a little bit dreadful. The author starts with a point that I very much agree with and it comes in the form of a question. Which type of man is going to be more motivated to move up at his job and to be in a more financially secure situation? And what you see here is the author is actually playing at those parents who want their kids to be more financially secure saying, well, Actually, marriage may help with that. The question, of course, is who's going to be more successful, a 32-year-old man scrolling through Tinder late at night or a 32-year-old man who's providing for his family? Who's going to put in more effort? Who's going to grind more? Who's going to work harder to ensure that they are financially secure? The person that has to ensure their kids are eating good food, that their kids are getting a good education, that their wife is taken care of that they possibly are paying some of the bills of their grandparents if they're living close by. These kind of people, the people that focus on family are driven and they have purpose. Quote, the gaps in the economic outcome between unpartnered and partnered adults have widened since 1990. Pew noted among men, the gaps are widening because unpartnered men are faring worse than they were in 1990. Among women, however, these gaps have gotten wider because partnered women are faring substantially better than in 1990. Married people also pool their resources. Want your kid to be financially secure? Move marriage to the top of his or her to-do list. A 2017 TD Ameritrade study found 29% of single adults consider themselves financially secure, whereas 43% of married couples say the same. A surprising stat in the data is that married people, despite often having to take care of expensive little people who live with them end up saving more than single people, end quote. And I feel like this is not necessarily obvious, but it makes sense. If you see a future, if you're sitting on your couch by yourself and you don't see a future that you want to invest in, and you can only think about the now, why would you save money? Whereas if you have a family and you're thinking about your well-being, your family's well-being, your children's well-being, because even if you are a single person, you could be worried about your retirement age, but you're not going to think it's as important as if you are dying on your deathbed and you want to leave something behind to your kids to make sure that they can get along. So it makes sense that having a family incentivizes you to be more responsible. Hmm, I wonder what is going on there. Maybe there is a responsibility crisis or a purpose crisis in our generation. But, I mean, no, maybe I'm just being hypercritical. I I don't know. Who am I to say? I am just a dumb college student. And, yes, my hands are raised in the air right now. So think of it this way. I've spoken before about the crisis of purpose. And even if you don't believe in God, having a child, a family, it provides you with a purpose, a goal. For my secular friends, our purpose on this earth biologically as a species is to procreate expand and adapt so almost any way you spin it unless you're malthusian of course having children and having a family is a good thing for society and our species as a whole and i think that's something that we need to have a serious conversation about you obviously see some of these intellectuals talking about it maybe you'll hear joe rogan speak about it You'll hear Tim Cast, Tim Pool, or sometimes you'll hear uh, Secular Talk talk about it, Dave Rubin, or um, maybe the Young Turks every once in a while, a lot of these small-time independent creators. They'll talk about it every once in a while, but I think this is a broader conversation we need to have as a society. But that's just me. That's just me. I know at the end of the day, not everybody agrees. They don't want to think about the long-term sad stuff. They just want to focus on the here and now and make it through. And some people don't have the option to focus on the future. They're just trying to make it through today. They're just trying to pay their bills, and I get that. All right, let's jump to our last article from Counterpunch, Israel's strange ambivalence on Ukraine. So let's start with a little identity politics, shall we? Quote, There are only two currently two Jewish heads of state in the world. The first, not surprisingly, leads Israel. The second is Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. They don't get along. Religious affiliation by itself does not determine political or military alliances. Plenty of wars have been pitted Christian against Christian, Muslim against Muslim. But there are only 15 million Jews in the world, especially in the post-Holocaust era, Jewish communities have generally stuck up for one another. Think of American Jews relying on the support of Soviet refugees during the Cold War, or the huge number of Ethiopian Jews inclu- welcomed to Israel, though not always completely with open arms end quote. And I, I just wanted to start out this way, and I thought it was interesting how the author, right from the jump, begins with, oh, well, there are only two Jewish leaders. They should be backing themselves up. But, you know, it makes sense. It did really catch my attention, so I guess it worked. But the underlying question about relations between Israel and Ukraine I thought was a very interesting one that I wanted to explore a little bit. Israel, whether it likes it or not, is heavily aligned with Western nations. So why haven't they backed NATO and their efforts in Ukraine? This, of course, is a very layered issue. You can't just point to one thing and say that is the reason why. But one of the key reasons, at least the one that this author is trying to point out, is that their reliance on Russia with a key position that they hold in Syria. Quote, Benjamin Netanyahu spoke of his close relationship with Putin back in 2021 Babi asked the Russian leader to help out with an Israeli woman attend, detained in Syria quote, "I spoke twice with my friend Russian president my friend Russian president Vladimir Putin Netanyahu reported I requested his assistance in returning her and he acted" End quote. Of course, there is a much larger geopolitical reason for the close relationship between the Kremlin and the Jewish state. The Israeli government depends on the good graces of the Russian military, which effectively controls the airspace over Syria, to monitor what's going on near the Israeli border and to bomb Iranian positions over the border. Israel has also in the past relied on Russian channels to Palestinian groups, particularly Hamas, end quote. So why, sh- why bring up this article? You may be wondering, after I just read that whole thing, talking about the geopolitical situation in the region. But I want to point out that Russia has influence, and it's using it to help its war efforts. And some of you may be saying, yes, we, we know this. We've seen their deals with Turkey, China, India, Belarus, OPEC. But why I think this is important to highlight is because The larger this conflict becomes, the grander it becomes, the more these lines in the sand become hardened. The more likely this thing escalates when, or it's more likely that this thing escalates when countries are eventually forced to take sides. This is not good for the state of the world, in my opinion. It could have lasting impacts on global economic relations. And whether you like globalization or not, you cannot deny that our materials, our markets, our economies, our supply chains are more interdependent than ever before. And that's why I wanted to bring this up. I know it's a very interesting article to take it from because we think of Israel as a Western-aligned nation but at the end of the day just like every other nation we think of India as our ally in the region but yet they're buying Russian oil we think of Saudi Arabia and some of the OPEC nations as our ally to enforce the petrodollar but yet Russia's a huge exporter so they came down on their side now Turkey Turkey's never really liked us from the beginning so we don't necessarily see that one as an ally and Belarus is basically a puppet state of Russia so we don't have many entr- interests there But what I'm trying to highlight is the fact that just because we have NATO and just because we have lots of allies on one issue or another doesn't mean that they're going to back us up when it comes to going against Russia. And of course, those that are very informed and those that are very aware are listening to this saying, Alex, yeah, we know this. And they're probably saying, yeah, we know that if this is really prolonged and different states have to come down on different sides it could be dangerous but i'm speaking to the people that haven't put it into context yet that they haven't sat down and said yeah you're right this this really could go even further than we think it is right now it's basically a proxy war between nato and russia but at the end of the day this could pull in so many more nations Because at the end of the day, some people really love Russia, or at least they really need Russia to accomplish some of their goals. And some other states really need the United States and Western nations and the economies that they provide. So I think that we just need to keep our eye on this. And we're coming up on the year anniversary of when Russia invaded Ukraine. And that's also why I wanted to highlight it. Because it looks like there's a military buildup. It looks like Putin might be coming across the border again through Belarus. So just keep your eye on it. And make sure that you're trying to stay up to date on this sort of stuff. Because personally, I don't necessarily think that we should be involved in a proxy war with Russia. I do agree with some of the commentators on the right saying that we have a political interest. And some of the commentators on the left saying Russia is abusing the people of Ukraine. But I also think at the end of the day, we should not be risking. We should not be really calling Putin's bluff to this degree if we're not willing to face up to the consequences and I will tell you now I like the world I live in I, I'm going to be honest I'll, I'll live in fear on this one I do not want to see any form of tactical nuke used while I think he is bluffing and I said this from the very beginning I think he is bluffing there's still the question or there's still the fact that he could use it And at what, how do we retaliate after that how do we respond to that And I don't know. And that terrifies me. So I think that at the end of the day, we should be providing an off-ramp for both Ukraine and Russia. And we should try to get them to the negotiating table. Because at the end of the day, I don't think this is benefiting anybody besides the warmongers and the big industry behind the American military complex. But that's just me. I know I got a little down and somber there. But like I said, we're coming up on the year anniversary, and I think it's an important conversation that needs to be had. All right, let's jump into our daily delight. This one comes from the breast cancer site. Watch this baby otter receive warm cuddles from a mama cat and her kittens. When I first looked at this picture, you know, it took a second or two to realize which one was the otter. You know, he really just fit in so perfectly. Quote, a Redditor has shown that the in- the Internet, another animal relationship that is rarely seen by everyone. In a post by West Coast C 19 you'll witness how a cat cuddles a baby otter as if it's one of her kittens. End quote. And, you know, these different combinations of animals always get me. But at this rate, we're really going to run out of cute animals or cute animal pairings for the daily delight. Quote, They were all swooshing close to the mama cat to get warm hugs, but the baby otter was the only one who got extra grooming love. The scenario indeed looks cozy, not because they're lying in a soft bed, but because the two animals that they're two animals that exude comfort. You can feel the love oozing from the short clip, and you'd also wish to receive the cuddles from them. End quote. If you want to see any of the Q photos or any of the videos from this article or read any of today's article, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. If you're on YouTube, visit one of the other podcast places so you can download the episodes in the future. They get live at the same time, 8.30 Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You can download them there, listen to them in the car, so on and so forth. And if you're on one of those other podcast sites... Remember, I have a a YouTube channel where everything's posted. There is not a video that goes along with it, but at the end of the day, you can leave comments, a little bit more interaction, live interaction, rather than leaving reviews on Spotify that I can't necessarily respond to. So if you want to be engaged in the conversation with the daily debate, leave it in the YouTube comments. Then that is Daily Flip on YouTube. All right, with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.